Good morning, everybody. Um, thank you to everyone who's shared this morning already. It's been uh, really good to be here. A um, couple of quick announcements from me before uh, we come to our, our teaching this morning. Um, one is just to say next Sunday we're going to take a break from, we're actually we're near the end of our series now um, on being a disciple from Mark's Gospel, but I think we're going to have one more at the end of November. Um, but next Sunday we take a break for a week. Um, we have a guest speaker. Um, her name is Michaela McMichael. Uh, she'll be known to some of you because she was from Coleraine uh, originally, but Michaela now works for a brilliant Christian charity called World Vision uh, that works with some of the world's poorest people um, in many different parts of the world. Um, and so Michaela's going to be here sharing. She will be sharing about the, wor the work of World Vision and sharing about ways that you can support World Vision and uh, get involved. Uh, but Michaela's also going to be sort of sharing just uh, uh, from God's word about God's heart for the world and God's heart for the poor. And she's a very engaging uh, speaker, Michaela. Uh, so I'd encourage you to be here uh, next Sunday uh, to hear her, and then we'll be back uh, to Mark the week after. Uh, and if you remember, you could pray for me next weekend. I'm going to be in Sligo. Uh, some of you will know we've been developing a friendship between our church here in Coleraine and Sligo City Church. Uh, the leaders have got together a couple of times to kind of talk and wonder and pray together about what friendship or partnership uh, might look like between a church in Coleraine and a church in Sligo, and we're still kind of exploring that. Uh, but this is kind of part of that. They've invited me to come and preach next Sunday morning. So if you remember, you could uh, pray for me. And then in the new year, we're hoping to have someone from Sligo come and speak to us uh, here. So it's a bit of a pulpit swap going on. Um, so I think that's all I need to mention. Um, one more thing before we come to our teaching is um, a lot of you uh, have been praying for Grant and Gillian in recent weeks and very aware of Grant's funeral a uh, week before last. Um, Gillian this week has sent me a message she'd like me to read out to everybody in church. So I'm going to read that and try not to uh, fall apart. Uh, this will be the most profound thing you hear this morning. So uh, uh, these are Gillian's words. Gillian says, Grant and I were so grateful for all of your love, cards, acts of kindness, messages, gifts, and visits while he was working out how to live with cancer in a way that honored God, yet faced the reality of a terminal diagnosis. Grant's main desire was to finish well, and I truly believe that thanks to your prayers and support, he was able to do just that. Never underestimate the power of a short text, a praying hands emoji, a meal or a hug. These are the loaves and fishes of the 21st century because on countless occasions, God used them to draw our focus back to him, to change our perspective, to enable us to see what he saw instead of the darkness that was overwhelming at times. Your continued prayers for my three wonderful children and myself are deeply appreciated. I am daily experiencing grief and enduring the deepest sorrow while being so aware of the peace that passes understanding and the joy that comes every morning. I'm in Korean now for a few weeks to rest and to remember Grant and the place we loved. I will hopefully see you all soon when God's grace enables me to. I want to finish with Philippians 1.3. Every time I think of you, 
I give thanks to my God. Thank you from a heart that is held by our Saviour and filled with gratitude for your love in action that has challenged and blessed me so much. That's from Gillian. You don't really need a sermon this morning. <laughs> um, but she, she really wanted you all to, to hear that this morning. So, let me gather myself. Um, let's take a moment and pray as we come, come to God's word this morning. Let's pray together. Father, um, as we think about Grant um, and all those who miss him and feel his loss, um, and we think also about what's been shared in the room this morning and uh, the heaviness of heart that uh, Stephanie was sharing with us uh, for tragedy in our local community. Um, we, we groan in our spirits and we, we so look forward to that day um, that Alison read to us about earlier on when sorrow and sighing will flee away. And we long for that day when there will be no more sorrow and no more tears and no more death. Um, Father, in the meantime, as we live in this world that is often full of tears, um, we pray that we would know the reality um, of your presence with us, of your love, of your kingdom breaking in in the midst of a world of tears. We pray that we would know the reality of your love and your strength and your power and your kindness. Uh, we pray that you would help us as your people to be people who carry your comfort and your hope uh, to those who are hurting. Thank you for the ways that we've even heard about that this morning. Um, and so, Father, we're really aware for these reasons and many others, we're really aware as we open up your word that we need you and we need you to speak into our lives words that will give us um, fresh hope and fresh courage and fresh love and fresh faith to live in the world that we live in. And so, Father, we come hungry and we pray you would feed us through your word this morning. Um, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to read this morning, um, kind of reaching the pivotal moment right at the middle of Mark's gospel. Um, and maybe just as a, a word of introduction, um, I think I'd said a number of weeks ago, Mark is a little bit like a, a murder mystery story that tells you who done it in the first sentence, because one of the big questions in Mark is the question, who is Jesus? Uh, and the, the characters who are in the story, the disciples and the crowd, and others are kind of puzzling and wondering about that question. They're watching Jesus and they're listening to him and they're trying to work out who he is. Uh, but of course, Mark told us in chapter one, verse one, his answer to the question, because he began the book by, he kind of couldn't, couldn't wait to tell us. He said, this is the good news, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah and the son of God. So Mark told us his answer, uh, but then we've been watching as the crowd and the disciples kind of try to work it out. And all of that kind of comes to a little bit of a, a point of crisis uh, now at the center of the book. So this is Mark chapter 8, 
and we're going to read from verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Um, lots and lots and lots going on in that passage, and we're not going to try to um, talk about all of it. We're going to really uh, zoom in on one or two verses in here. Um, but like I said at the start, um, the big question that's kind of been uh, buzzing around the whole first half of Mark is the question, who is Jesus? Mark told us his answer at the beginning. The characters have been puzzling and wondering. Um, and now we reach this point where Jesus kind of brings that question to the fore and he says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And we find out what the crowd are saying as they've been watching and listening. And I guess what we find out is they've kind of got part of the way there. <laughs> so they've realized there's something pretty special about Jesus. They've realized he's pretty significant. And they're trying to find a category that they can fit him into. That's what we tend to do with anything we experience. We try to, do I have a category I can, that, that will make sense of what I'm, what I'm seeing? And so some of what Jesus is doing reminds them a little bit of John the Baptist. So some of them are thinking, is this John the Baptist kind of come back to life? Um, some of them are thinking, it remind, he reminds me a lot of Elijah and the stories about Elijah in the Old Testament. So maybe this is Elijah come back. There's promises in the Old Testament about uh, something to do with Elijah coming again. Um, some of them are looking at him and saying, the way he speaks and the authority that he speaks with, he sounds like a prophet. And so that's the, the box that they put him in. Um, and maybe, maybe for some of us this morning who are here 
uh, this morning or, li or listening in, that's kind of where we are. We're, we're not sure yet what we think of Jesus and we're puzzling. We know there's something kind of remarkable about him. We're drawn to him, but we're not quite sure yet what to make of him. Um, and if that's where you are this morning, I want to encourage you to keep watching and keep listening and keep wondering and keep puzzling. Um, the characters in the story in the Bible, it took them a while um, to, to fully realize who Jesus was. And uh, If you're still not sure, I want to encourage you just to keep wondering honestly about that and keep paying attention uh, to Jesus. Um, but then we get this moment with Peter where Peter has been watching closely and paying attention and Peter gets the answer right. We know the right answer from chapter 1, verse 1. You, uh, he's the Messiah. And Peter, this is kind of a, a great moment in the book because finally somebody in the story has realized what is true, what is real. He says, you are the Messiah, which means you are the anointed one, which means you are the king we've been waiting for, the king we've been expecting. The king has arrived. And so it's a, it's a beautiful moment. You kind of you want fireworks kind of going off. Somebody has finally realized. But then the story goes in a way we don't expect. Because immediately following that realization, Jesus starts to talk about suffering and about death. And we then discover that although Peter has realized in one sense who Jesus is, he hasn't yet understood. He hasn't yet understood the kind of king that Jesus is and is going to be. Um, a king who has come to suffer and die for the people. That wasn't on Peter's radar. Um, he's ready to kind of crown Jesus there and then in front of everybody as king. But he hasn't yet understood that this is the center of the story. That the cross is the heart and the center of the story of Jesus. And in fact, the cross is the heart and the center of the story of the world. That's not anywhere yet on Peter's radar. We haven't seen Jesus clearly until we see this. That's why Jesus speaks so strongly to Peter and it shocks us because for Jesus to avoid the cross would be to miss the whole reason for why he has come. And so Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It's the enemy who wants to keep Jesus from the cross. Jesus has set his face to go there. Um, and so the crowd are wondering and haven't quite figured it out. Peter has kind of got it, but kind of not got it yet. Um, but maybe I want to ask the question, what about us? Um, I, I always think when you read that moment in Mark's gospel, when Jesus turns to the disciples and says, what about you? Who do you say I am? You kind of imagine him looking out of the book and speaking to us, saying, what about you? Who, who do you say that I am? It's a very provocative moment, makes it very personal. Um, and maybe for some of us, when we're asked that question, we might feel a little bit superior and a little bit smug because maybe we're thinking we know better than the crowd in the story and we know better than Peter. We know Jesus is more than just a prophet. We know he's not John the Baptist or Elijah. He's much greater, much, much greater, um, unimaginably greater than them. Um, we know, like Peter, that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. Um, but we also know better than Peter because, of course, we know Jesus came to suffer and die. And if anybody asked us 
what we think about Jesus, we could say Jesus came to die for the sins of the world and the cross was why he came. And so maybe when we're asked the question, we're thinking, I'm doing pretty well. I'm doing better than the crowd, better than Peter. Um, I've, got, I've got it all figured out. And maybe what I want to suggest is we need to be not too quick to congratulate ourselves. That's probably generally a good principle. Um, don't be too quick to congratulate ourselves. Um, perhaps we've realized who Jesus is and why he has come. But I wonder if we have fully grasped the next part. Because immediately after speaking of his own suffering and death, um, we, we come to the question of if Jesus is that kind of king who goes to the cross, then the question becomes this, what does that mean for those who follow him? What does it mean to follow this Jesus who suffers and dies for the sins of the world, who goes to the cross? And that's the question that now kind of comes to the fore. And Jesus, um, I love that the way in this moment, Jesus calls the whole crowd because he wants everybody to hear this, not just the disciples, but the whole crowd. And Jesus says this, and it's kind of the main verse I want to focus on this morning. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. If Jesus is that kind of king, then this is what it's going to mean to follow him. And it's incredibly strong language. If you want to be an apprentice of Jesus, learning from him how to live, which is what we've been talking about in this series, um, you have to deny yourself, which means kind of giving up the throne of your life, saying, my self is no longer on the throne. My self is no longer at the center. And that goes against our very deeply ingrained instincts, which want to put self always at the center. Um, and it goes against our culture, which tends to celebrate the self in every way, self-fulfillment and self-actualization and self-realization and self-expression. And so it goes against our instincts and it goes against our cultural narrative. But we're to deny ourselves from, say, from now on, Jesus will be the center. From now on, Jesus will be Lord and King. Um, so it's a language of self-denial. And then it's also the language of death. Take up your cross. It's the language of suffering and death. It's the language of total surrender and commitment. It's about putting everything on the line everything on the line, right? That's the kind of language that Jesus uses. Anyone who wants to be my disciple, this is what it means. Um, very famous quotation from a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who I'll talk about in a second, but uh, Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And he meant women as well. Uh, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids them come and die. That's, that's what's entailed in what Jesus says in these verses. Um, some of you will know Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany um, during the Second World War. He was one of the first Christian voices to speak up against Hitler 
uh, whenever in the early days of the, the Nazi regime. Uh, he was later part of the Confessing Church, which took a stand as Christians against uh, all that was going on um, in Germany. Um, Bonhoeffer wrote a book, a famous book called The Cost of Discipleship. Um, and Bonhoeffer um, warned in that book about the danger of what he called cheap grace. Uh, and I want to talk about that phrase for a moment. Um, I think it's a, probably a really important warning for our religious culture um, in Northern Ireland. Um, maybe when you hear the phrase cheap grace, um, it can sound like a strange phrase or maybe even like a contradiction because maybe when you hear it, you're thinking, I thought the whole point of grace was that it was free, <laughs> right? So cheap grace can sound like an odd phrase. Uh, and of course, it is wonderfully, gloriously, beautifully true that grace is, is free, right? Grace is something that is lavished on us by God without any merit or earning or deserving on our part. And that's at the very heart of the gospel. It's amazing grace. It's freely given and freely received. Um, famously in Ephesians 2, um, it says, for it's by grace that you have been saved through faith, this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's a free gift, freely given by a gracious God, right? So that is wonderfully, gloriously, beautifully true and at the very heart of the gospel. But sometimes, and I think this is true in our kind of evangelical gospel culture in Northern Ireland, um, we, we've been very good at preaching that. We preach about grace and we preach that it's by faith and by grace and not by works. And it's really good that we preach that really clearly. Uh, but sometimes when you emphasize one theme in the Bible and neglect others, you can end up actually with a serious distortion. Um, you can end up with what, what uh, one writer has called a heresy of emphasis, where everything you're saying is true but you're giving a distorted impression because there's other things that you're not talking about that are also there in the Bible. Um, sometimes in talking about grace and the free gift of God, we've given the impression that you can receive this free gift of grace and receive salvation and receive forgiveness and receive the promise of heaven and it make no difference at all to the way that you live. It's kind of a momentary transaction where you say a prayer and you get salvation and you get your sins forgiven and you get your ticket to heaven and then life goes on pretty much like before or, or maybe with a few minor modifications here and there but no radical transformation of the way that we live. Sometimes we've given the impression you can believe and be saved without any deep transformation of your life without any deep transformation of your heart and your character, without any costly discipleship. And I think when we've done that, it's a heresy of emphasis. We've given a false impression uh, of what the Bible teaches. So Bonhoeffer says, this is his definition. Cheap, I don't know if you can see that actually, I'll put it on uh, bad background. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. 
I think it's a warning that's really important to hear. And because the verse that we're focusing on this morning makes really clear, Jesus didn't leave that option open. Um, you can't accuse Jesus of being like a, a deceptive, you know, like a deceptive salesman who tells you all the good stuff up front um, and then kind of hides the, the terms and conditions, kind of mumbles them very quickly uh, later on, just tells you the, the positives. This is right at the beginning as people are thinking about whether to become a disciple. Jesus says, anyone who wants to come after me and be my disciple, this is what it's going to entail. Um, he couldn't have said it any more clearly. There isn't an option of just salvation without discipleship, where we take just the forgiveness and the promise of heaven without deep repentance, deep transformation, costly discipleship, without a radical reorientation of your whole existence. That's what's involved in becoming a Christian. There's no genuine faith in Jesus as saviour that doesn't also involve bowing the knee to Jesus as king. And I think we need to say that really clearly to ourselves and to each other, giving him total allegiance as king. We're going to sing at the end a um, simple, powerful song. It says, Jesus, all for Jesus, all I am and have and ever hope to be. All of my ambitions, hopes, and plans, I surrender these into your hands. That's what's involved in becoming a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus. Um, and I, I know there's kind of a paradox in all of this. If someone asks us the question, what does it cost to become a Christian? Um, I think we need to have the courage to answer as the Bible does, which is to say it costs nothing. <laughs> And also, it costs everything. And I don't think the Bible solves that paradox for, it, for us. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't win it as a reward. Salvation is given freely by a gracious God. But when that grace gets hold of your heart, it's going to cost you everything. Right? Your whole life. Um, and so I want to think with you for a few minutes this morning. And I know this is a a challenging thing to talk about. There's no easy way to talk about this. Um, but I want to I think about this. What will it cost you to follow Jesus? And I want to think about this if you're not yet a follower of Jesus and are thinking about it, or if you're already well down the road, it's good to pause and think about this. What might it cost you to follow Jesus? Jesus doesn't spell it out here in this passage. Um, and I think it's really important to say the cost will be different for every disciple, right? There's no, there's no repeats in the life of discipleship. Um, I don't know if you remember the bit at the end of John's gospel in John 21. There's a bit where after the resurrection, Jesus is talking to Peter and he's, he's basically telling Peter that his discipleship is gonna lead him to death. He's kind of cryptically talking about the fact that Peter is gonna die for his faith. And Peter, like we tend to do, um, turns around and points at somebody else, probably John, um, he's following behind, and says, what about him? <laughs> uh, and do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said to him, what is that to you? You follow me. And there's something in there about how the cost for the person beside you is not going to be the same as the cost for you, but we are to follow, right? 
We're not, we're not told what it's going to mean for someone else, but we're going to keep following Jesus step by step, and he will tell us um, what's going to be involved. And so I guess what I want to do for a few minutes is I want to mention some of the ways that following Jesus may cost us. And all I can do is mention a few examples and then let the Holy Spirit work it out with you, what it's going to mean for you. So I want to mention a few. Um, following Jesus may cost you in terms of your habits and your desires. In other words, there are things that you enjoy doing and desires that you would like to pursue and act on. And Jesus will ask you to say no to some of those things. And that will be costly. Um, it's always worth saying that could be in the realm of the more obvious things. It could be in the realm of our sexual habits or our drinking habits um, or our gambling habits. Or it could be in things that are not as obvious. It could be your shopping habits and your gossiping habits and your judging and criticizing other people habits um, and so on and so on. Um, but Jesus is going to ask you to say no to some behaviors that are really delicious, right? Do you remember in, at the beginning of the story of the Bible, the man and woman saw the fruit and it looked really good. <laughs> and God said, you're not to eat from that tree. And there's going to be things that you look at and go, I really want to do that because it's delicious. Um, and Jesus is going to ask you to say no. And that's going to be costly. Um, really important to say, Jesus doesn't ask us to give things up because they are enjoyable. Um, some of us have that image of God and Jesus as cosmic spoil sports, and they're going to take away anything that's enjoyable. That's not what's, what's going on. Jesus will ask you to give things up because they are things that either are sin or will lead to sin, and therefore will damage you and enslave you and diminish you. And so for your good and for your joy, for your freedom, he will ask you to say no, but in the moment it will be costly because he's asking you to give up something that tastes really good and looks really good. Um, so there'll be cost in the, in the area of our habits and desires. There'll be cost in the area of your ambitions. You might have a dream of a certain kind of career or success or wealth or lifestyle, and Jesus may redirect your ambitions in really radical ways. So I was thinking about this this week. I thought about the two Emmas, um, two friends of mine, both called Emma, and I don't think they know each other. Um, but they came to mind because both of them uh, were about my age and grew up um, in, around Belfast. Um, Emma went away to university in Scotland. She went and studied history. She was uh, bright and ready for anything, all kinds of career options ahead of her. And Emma gave the best years of her life in her 20s and 30s to working for a Christian charity in Edinburgh that works with the homeless and addicts, people addicted to alcohol, people addicted to heroin. She spent her days scraping vomit off the floor, working with people who broke her heart repeatedly. Um, why do you do something like that? Because Jesus asked her to. And she said, yes, but that's really costly. I don't know what her, whenever she was a little girl and people said, what do you want to do? With your life. I'm pretty sure she didn't say that, right? But Jesus redirected her path. My other friend Emma went to university with me in Belfast, studied law, incredibly sharp mind, could have done anything she wanted to do. Um, she now works also in Scotland. By the way, going to Scotland is not the cost. <laughs> Scotland is beautiful. 
Um, but she also works in Scotland and she spends her days working for a Christian charity, giving legal advice to asylum seekers who've come uh, fleeing war zones, fleeing persecution, heartbreaking stories. Um, you don't need me to tell, tell you she doesn't get paid a lot to do that, right? Why would you do that? Because Jesus asked her to. It's really costly. Uh, and by the way, that may not be the way Jesus re redirects you. He may direct you to have a really successful business and then to use the money that comes from that to be generous uh, and empower all kinds of good things in the world. And that may be how he redirects you, right? It's not one story. What about him? It's not your business. Um, you follow Jesus. Um, both the stories of the two Emmas remind me that of that other cost that is being with the poor and the marginalized and the hurting, which the gospel calls us to again and again, will involve real cost. And I remember talking to both, both the Emmas and them talking about the ways in which the work that they do, they loved it and they didn't want to be doing anything else, but it also broke their heart every day and was really hard to shake off when they went home. There's a real cost in doing that kind of work. Um, and a similar theme, I think, of many people, many of them in this room, um, who have been prompted by Jesus to open their home to foster children or to adopt children. Um, you talk about something that's going to break your heart every day. It's really costly. Or maybe to open your home to Ukrainian immigrants or people from other parts of the world. There's lots of people in this room um, who have done that, but it's really costly to invite people into your home and share the space. Um, what other kind of costs might be involved? Um, it may involve ridicule and rejection from friends and family or from neighbors and colleagues. Um, I do think it's good, maybe good to say in most cases in our culture, that will be relatively mild. And sometimes I think that's something we fear more than the reality. And often we find when we stick our neck out and are open about our faith, a lot of the people around us will treat us with respect. But um, for some in our culture and for many around the world, this is a serious cost ridicule and rejection and sometimes losing relationship with people we love. I find myself remembering a young man called Tom uh, who I met 20 years ago at a conference in the Netherlands for people in student work. Um, Tom um, was another bright spark who his parents had been first generation immigrants to America from Taiwan and like a lot of first generation immigrants they were really ambitious for their kids which is not wrong uh, they wanted their kids to do really well. And Tom got sent to Harvard and studied economics at Harvard. You don't need me to tell you. He's on the fast track to who knows what. And then Tom came and told his parents that Jesus had asked them to go to Mongolia <laughs> to share the gospel with students there. Um, his parents um, couldn't accept it. Um, Tom told me his parents got on their hands and knees and begged him not to go and said, if you do this, you are no longer our son. What do you do, <laughs> right? Tom went and they established a student ministry in Mongolia and it was a time when the church grew dramatically and the work that they did is still flourishing today in Mongolia. Tom is now heading up the work of InterVarsity in North America, uh, working with students there. But what do you do at a moment like that, right? There's cost involved in following Jesus. 
Um, and of course, following Jesus can lead even in many cases around the world to prison or violence or death. And there have been many, many followers of Jesus for whom following Jesus has led to the ultimate cost. And Bonhoeffer, who I put on the screen earlier on, was one of them. His faith led him to stand against Hitler, which led to imprisonment and eventually led to his death not long before the war ended. Um, following Jesus can have financial costs because he's going to ask you to be generous and give away what you have and share what you have with other people. It can have costs because he's going to ask you to forgive people who wrong you and love your enemy and bless them, and that's going to hurt and that's going to cost. Um, it can have cost in relationships. I've known many people, and maybe I do want to say, especially uh, single, single females, single women, who have chosen to stay single or chosen to, for part or all of their life rather than go into a relationship with someone who was not going to be good for them in terms of their walk with Jesus. And that is really costly. Right? And so in all these ways that I've mentioned, and, a th and also a thousand small, everyday, costly choices, following Jesus is costly. Giving up what is easy, giving up what is comfortable, giving up what is convenient in order to love God, in order to love your neighbor, in order to love your enemy, in order to love the stranger, as we've been talking about already this morning. And of course, all of this is following in the footsteps of Jesus himself, who left the place of comfort and ease and glory and came all the way down and entered into the mess and the pain of human life and went all the way to death, even death on a cross for us. And now he says, anyone who wants to come after me has got to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And so, as we get near the end, maybe you're thinking, why on earth would anybody choose this path? Because that sounds really awful. <laughs> JM, not going to lie, sounds really awful. Um, and so, I don't want to end there. I want to end with this. Jesus gives us, after that really difficult challenge, he gives us a really amazing promise. And that tends to be the way in the Bible. When you get a really difficult command, look for the promise uh, that's lying nearby. Um, Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it or will find it. Um, there's something really paradoxical here, isn't there? Um, Jesus is saying we can, if we want to, stay on the throne of our life and live by kind of self-preservation and just looking out for me and live by the creed of our culture of self-expression and self-fulfillment and self-discovery and self-self-self. And our culture tends to promise that that will lead to freedom, that actually that is what freedom is. Freedom is the freedom just to do you you do you, be yourself, express yourself, um, and that's it. Um, but actually, when we put self on the throne, it leads to a diminishment and a shrinking of life. Um, we will find life and joy draining away. We'll find life getting smaller and smaller, curved in on itself. We'll find that we have our own little tiny pathetic kingdom of self, and it becomes a kind of dungeon that we're in. Anybody who wants to save their life is going to lose it. And I think that's about both now and beyond death. 
Um, but Jesus says, when we give our lives away for him, for this gospel, something very strange and paradoxical happens. There is real cost and real suffering and real pain, but we also find that what we lose is nothing compared to what we find. For me, that's the heart of that promise. There's, there's real cost and real loss, but what we lose in the end is nothing compared to what we find. We, and what we find is life. That's the word that Jesus uses. Life in all its fullness. We become more alive. We become more human. We become more free. We become more the people we were created to be. And the life that Jesus brings is something we can never lose. So it begins now and it lasts forever. It's the eternal kind of life. Um, is the life that we find as we follow Jesus. Um, why, why on earth would you choose to live this way? You do it. Well, Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before him. And I think there's something similar for us. Why, do you, why on earth would you embrace that costly life? You do it for the joy set before you. And that's both a joy that you'll start to experience now in the middle of the suffering and the cost and the hurt. But it's also a joy that lies beyond death um, in, a, in a measure that we can't imagine. And so I'm going to sneak peek later on in Mark's gospel. In chapter 10, Jesus says this. He says, truly I tell you, this is, this is amazing, listen to this. Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. It's not quite a promise. Um, and so last thing, I want to give the last word to, I've talked a lot about sort of young adults facing big decisions about what to do with their lives. Um, Jim Elliott, uh, many of you will have heard of, was another bright young man with the world at his feet, um, all kinds of options ahead of him. And he gave it up to go with four friends to a remote tribe in the jungles of Ecuador. Uh, and they plotted together and planned carefully um, how to share the gospel with uh, a tribe that, that had a reputation for being very violent and very fierce. Um, they made contact with the tribe. They tried to be careful in how they approached them. They came with the gospel of peace. <laughs> they came to tell of God's love uh, to this tribe. Uh, but on January 8th, 1956, Jim Elliott and his four friends were pierced with spears by a river in Ecuador. And they bled and died in the water. And the question you've got to ask is, is that a foolish, tragic, pointless waste of a young life full of potential? Most of you, or many of you will know, earlier in his life, um, Jim Elliot had written in his journal these words. He'd written, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Right? If you give your life away for Jesus and the gospel, you will always find much more than you lose, both in this life and in the life to come. You will see his kingdom coming with power. Um, let's pray together uh, as we finish. 
um, and then we're gonna we're gonna sing a song of response. So um, let me remind you, um, if God is speaking to you this morning, uh, if you're feeling challenged or um, there's something stirring in your heart, um, and you'd like someone to pray with you, or there's something going on in your life, uh, there'll be a couple of people up here at the front uh, who would love to pray with you before you go. But let's let's pray together. Father, this is a, a really difficult challenge from Jesus, and we don't want to we don't want to water it down, and we don't want to look away from it or shy away. Um, I want to pray that every single one of us this morning would hear Jesus um, looking at us, maybe saying to us, "Who do you say that I am?" But then also saying, if you want to come after me, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow. Um, Father, I pray whether we are on the threshold of becoming a Christian or wondering about it, whether we're at the beginning of our journey of discipleship or whether we've been following you for decades, um, would you help us this morning maybe again, just to count the cost, to recognize this is what it means to be a Christian, this is what it means to be a believer, this is what it means to be a follower, to lay it all on the line and say all for Jesus. Father, help us to face the fact that that is going to be costly. But Father, would you help us to hear and to believe your words of promise that when we give our lives away for you and the gospel, what we find is far greater than what we lose, which is life in all its fullness, both now and forever. Father, would you help us to believe that promise? And therefore, would you help us to lay down our lives and surrender again to you? Um, Father, even as we sing this song, um, help us to mean it this morning. Um, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.